This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so excited and honored to have Dr. Mary Alice Scott and Dr. Yvettes Martinez join us. And would you tell us a little bit, Dr. Scott and Dr. Martinez, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and where do you work at and your background? Sure, I'll go first. Um, I'm Mary Alice Scott. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at New Mexico State University. Um, and I also work with the Southern New Mexico Family Medicine Residency Program um, as an anthropologist. I'm a medical anthropologist and, um, and I work with the residency program to develop training in, um, in health equity and social medicine. And hello everyone, my name is Yvettes Martinez. I am currently the Archstone Foundation Endowed Chair in Gerontology and a professor at California State University, where I direct the Center for Successful Aging. Um, for 11 years, I was Associate Professor of Medicine at Florida International University, where I taught um, medical students um, throughout the four years of undergraduate medical education on social determinants of health, health disparities, cultural humilities, um, and all those things that anthropology can bring to the table in medical education. So, um, and as, as a result, um, Mary Alice and I ended up collaborating on a book, um, Anthropology in Medical Education, Sustaining Engagement and, and Impact. And a little known fact is that anthropologists have been teaching in medicine for over a hundred years, but um, with not too much success. And so um, the purpose of the book was to sort of help us do this better and to learn from current um, efforts uh, throughout the globe in integrating anthropology into medical education. Yeah, Jake, I, I don't I don't think I remember that class <laughs> in Jackson. Do you? No, 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 no. That was that was definitely something we were introduced to. But I would love to know more about the the history of anthropology and medicine. Can you give us a little bit of the, the details on on how it's been used in the past? Yeah, sure. Um, traditionally, sort of um, 1890s or so through the 1950s, um, anthropologists were integrated uh, mostly um, through anatomy and physiology classes. Um, I don't know if you're all aware that traditionally anthropology has four fields. And um, two of those fields um, involve like biological anthropology and physical anthropology. So that's where anthropologists found themselves helping out. Um, and then around the 1960s, there was a shift into, sort of had to do with the shifts in medicine as well, uh, the shifts into movement towards health insurance and uh, working with communities. And um, anthropologists started, um, social anthropologists and cultural anthropologists started uh, working um, in medical schools again, but in a different capacity. Um, in the 70s, it was about understanding patients' perspectives and how to work with communities. And that's um, sort of generally broad scope how anthropology has been involved in medicine since the 1970s. That That's really, really fascinating. And, you know, I had never, 
Mary Alice, you, you were on the podcast uh, a few months, several months ago, and, and I just I thought it was really, really interesting. And and one of the questions I have is now that nowadays when we talk about the the social determinants of health and, you know, we can we can predict the diseases that someone's going to have just by knowing their zip code or knowing their race or knowing their ethnic uh, ethnicity. How how does a social anthropologist how do you, how do you guys tie in with that and how do you guys uh, help us understand those those social determinants of health and how is that you know does that make sense that question sure I can I can start to answer that and I'm sure Evadis will have some additional um, things to say but I think one of the things about anthropology um, that at least the way that I learned anthropology is we think about it as a holistic, um, a, a holistic discipline. And so we um, we're always looking at whatever the focus or the topic of our specific research is. We're always thinking about it kind of from multiple different angles. So we're thinking about um, that we're thinking about history. We're thinking about economic systems. We're thinking about political systems. We're thinking about social environments and infrastructure and all of those kinds of things um, that in, that influence a patient's health um, are, are is kind of that's kind of how we get trained as anthropologists is to think in those complex ways. And so um, and social determinants of health are complex and the connections between social determinants of health and the health outcomes that we see um, in patient in in patient populations are those are complex connections. And so I think anthropologists are really well positioned to be able to um, kind of, you know, break that down and really help people who maybe haven't had that kind of training really understand both the complexity and also where they fit in. I, I completely agree. Um, Integrating the social determinants of health into medical education is not easy because social determinants are complex. And so the challenge is uh, making the complex uh, remain, keep the nuance, but but understand how it affects patient, how it affects patient outcomes. And you, you, the first thing you said, Mary Alice, was history and understanding the history behind that. Social determinants are not just something that happened overnight. <laughs> it's something that have uh, developed uh, throughout our history. And understanding the history of communities and of our country, um, the way political systems and policies impact um, our patients um, is something that I think we bring to the table as anthropology in medicine. And we are able to engage students in um, what is their role? So I always used to tell my students, like, as physicians, you hold a privileged position in society. People look up to you to have answers uh, on these issues. So they need to sort of be informed and have a voice at the table, be, have an, be an informed voice. And so, so, for example, some of the projects that we would do is, um, I was in Florida at the time, so have our students... Um, I had a project uh, where I taught students how to use ethnographic interviews. So how to sort of learn about the experience of their patients and what was behind it. And this was for the patients who were in that donut hole of Medicaid expansion and really understand how that impacted them. Why were they uninsured? What were the challenges? 
and be able to talk as medical students to their representatives to give that more complex um, perspective and how being uninsured impacted patient health. And so that's the kind of thing that I think as anthropologists, um, we can help our students better understand. So I, I think, Mary Alice, when you were on last time, we, we talked a lot about the different culture of healthcare providers within a hospital, within a residency program. Um, and what we're talking a little bit more about, I guess, patient culture. And we, you know, as physicians, we're used to dealing with patients one-on-one -on -one and, and certainly those cultural factors and social determinants uh, play a large role. But we also have begun over the last you know, few decades, I guess, seeing doing more population health management. And, you know, at least in my experience, our methods of engaging with those populations is, you know, is pretty pretty limited. Maybe we'll send, you know, some, some mail, maybe we'll call them, maybe we'll send up some text message reminders. Uh, but very little, I guess, is done to understand the, the cultures of the population that you're trying to reach. Um, how has, how has, you know, y'all's experience been with using anthropology to, I guess, help better engage and, and manage those populations? Sure. So I, I want to start with one of the challenges that I see to, to that, um, it, which is that um, when you're thinking about population health and the cultures of patients and you're responsible for taking care of individual patients, you kind of have to think at two levels at the same time. So you have to think about the patterns that you see in a population, but also recognize that those patterns may or may not apply to the individual mm -hmm. patients in front of you. And Ivaris mentioned at the very beginning that she does training in cultural humility, which is part of um, what I'm talking about, right, is not making assumptions about who the patient is based on um, their last name, based on the color of their skin, based on um, their gender identity, you know, as noted in the in the medical record, um, but instead to ask questions. Um, at the same time, when you're doing population health, um, part of what you're doing is looking looking for patterns, right? And so the ability, part of what we, I think anthropologists can bring to the table is the ability to really be able to think at both of those levels, sometimes at the same time. I think another area um, is building relationships with community because population health management um, ideally <laughs> can't be based just on just mails and calls. Um, you know, so I worked in Baltimore City for many years and um, there's just a sort of a, a, a certain distrust and bridge between medical community and and people living um, under conditions of poverty in our neighborhoods surrounding our institutions. And I find that it often happens that our medical institutions are surrounded by neighborhoods of a lot of need. Um, and um, so anthropologists are trained in sort of building trust um, with community and being able to get in there and have them tell us what are the real priority needs, um, not just coming from the outside with our perspective about what their need, because we see it in certain data, because we see it in surveys, uh, but sort of getting in there and understanding the dynamics and what is of importance to communities. 
Yeah, well, that that's that's really interesting, and I, I was just my mind was just you know running, and I was just thinking about the potential applications for for social anthropologists and in, in in medicine, and I was you know I was thinking about health insurance companies, you know, who who are insuring these at-risk populations. What 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 role could a could a social anthropologist play? with those companies maybe trying to help them understand, you know, why these patients are at risk or, or why they they don't seem to do as well with certain certain disease processes as as other populations. Yeah. Do, I, do, I, do y'all see a role for that or you know? I, I think so. I will I um I um one of the projects that I um, worked on with some graduate students um, at New Mexico State was, um, a set, you know, I don't know, 2011 maybe, um, or 12, um, right around the time that the ACA was was implemented. And we worked with um, a formerly free health center that was um, transitioning into a, a health center that could um, accept Medicaid because with the pa- when when the ACA um, was passed, um, some of the provisions in the ACA were going to make it more challenging for that health center to continue um, continue to 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 function. Um, and so um, so we we did talk to um, a large number of of patients at that health center about navigating um, the process of um, determining eligibility for Medicaid you know, getting, getting Medicaid, um, and then um, everything else that happens after. And so one of the, I think there's many ways that anthropologists could be involved, but I think one of the things that um, we saw in that project is that sometimes processes are put in place that seem absolutely reasonable, um, but when you implement them on the ground and people actually have to go through those processes, you learn all kinds of things, um, all kinds of barriers, um, you know, things that just didn't occur to you from this kind of higher policy level um, that 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 play out on the ground. And I think anthropologists are really um, well positioned and well trained to be able to learn um, about those kinds of things and really document um, and understand the complexities of those processes. Sure, and you 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 can, you know, an anthropologist may say that this this will what you're trying to do is never going to work with this culture because that's just that's just not the way they do things. Or does that make sense? You know. Sure, or or not, and it maybe not even a culture, but like one of the things that we found in this study when we were working with people who are trying, you know, there's Medicaid expansion now. There are people who are newly eligible. Um, if you don't have a, a home. Um, then you may not have the documentation that you need um, to be able to prove your eligibility for uh, Medicaid. Um, And so what do you do, right, in those situations? So it might sometimes be cultural. It might also sometimes be, you know, other social determinants of health, right, other social factors um, that that come into play that – people may not necessarily think about. And I wouldn't say I would blame people for not thinking about those because the people who are thinking that policy at that policy level sometimes are trying to think through this for many, many different populations. And it's really hard to, you know, it's it's hard to come up with all the possible scenarios, right? Um, 
so yeah, so that I think um, I think that it's helpful to have anthropologists who are able to provide that kind of that kind of data. I can give an example as like something like as an anthropologist that I'm involved in currently or was involved with recently in my work in aging in Long Beach. Um, so when efforts, uh, there was vaccination efforts, um, when we first got the vaccine for COVID and it opened up, priority group, as everyone knows, were 65 and older. Um, so without any ill intentions, the city offered, okay, vaccinations, vaccines were available at the convention center for the next two weeks for older adults. Here's the number to call or book your appointment online. We got almost no older adults vaccinated. Why? <laughs> you know, sort of thinking through the why, right? The, you know, the lack of access to internet, um, the unfamiliarity with making online appointments, um, the language barriers for calling in, um, lack of transportation, mobility issues, homebound. And so based on my work, right, <laughs> I, I am able to sort of see that, oh, wait a minute, there's all these things that we need to think about. And sort of with a coalition of service providers um, that I and the health department had organized, we were able to provide that input. We worked through sort of different scenarios of older adults um, who might have, wh what are the things, the barriers that they might come up against? And we were able to give that information to the health department that then set up mobile pop-up clinics we work with service providers to offer uh, vaccinations at their locations to do outreach um, and eventually home visits. And now, uh, not, I'm not taking the credit for this by myself, but Long Beach has a 99% vaccination rate for older adults. So we've we brought up trust uh, a number of times uh, already in the podcast. and. You know, one of the issues facing medicine today is that uh, we've kind of had an erosion of trust between the, the patients and the, the physicians. It used to be, you know, we, at least we thought that if you had the white coat and you, you said something, the patient would do exactly what you said. Um, but maybe now with social media and, and some of the other things that are, are coming into play, we, we've seen erosion of trust and they're more likely to you know, choose the advice of their uncle that posts something on Facebook than, than the doctor that they see regularly. Um, how can the study of culture and, and anthropology help with, I guess, building back some of that trust? That's a good question. Yvettis, do you want to answer that first? We'll yeah. switch. switch. <laughs> it's well, an easy question. No, yeah. <laughs> That's a softball. Uh, well, quick I mean, I mean, there's several things going on with the trust in medicine, right? There's more information, right? There's, I think, the changes within medicine itself, uh, sort of the time that U.S. physicians get to spend with your patients and able to get to know them and establish um, that relationship with them. I mean, what you guys have to do is not easy, <laughs> you know, uh, to basically figure out what's going on with the patient and their whole history and sort of come to a, some action plan within 10 minutes. I just can't imagine. Um, so, um, I, I mean, anthropology has provided certain tools in terms of sort of some, you know, so what is the best question to ask to sort of get at 
what's really going on with the patient. So I think of sort of our, our classic tool is uh, Kleinman's explanatory model. Um, and so there's certain things that anthropologists can collaborate with um, medicine to come up with sort of what is the what are the best strategy within the current limitations of our medical model to really serve our patients as best we can and and rebuild some of that trust. Um, I think of also some of the um, sort of one exercise I would do with our students, which is um, to help them think through the social determinants and sort of the frustrations that patients might feel going through our medical system and not getting the proper diagnosis. And so sort of developing sort of have trust goes both ways. You know, some of my students would start off with like, why do these people come to see us if they are not going to follow our directions or they're not going to do what we tell them to do. Um, going sort of switching our minds from there to sort of what is my responsibility? What am I doing? What do I know about this patient and their community and their life experience? And that's that cultural humility piece of to always be asking questions about what you can learn. And I think these are strategies to rebuild that trust in medicine again. Sure. Um, before we started recording, we Skip mentioned a little a little bit about surveys and, and that we do use a lot of surveys in, in healthcare to gather information. And is that risky or is that accurate? Or are we, are we sending out too many surveys? Uh, I'd like to get y'all's opinions. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll start um, with that one. Um, so I, I think surveys can be useful. They have to be well-designed um, and, and, um, and they can't answer every question. Um, and so I think that to me, that's what's really important about surveys. If you have a complex question that you want to answer, it is unlikely, in, in my opinion, that a survey is going to get you all the data that you need to be able to answer that complex question. Um, I, and I, I think also you have to um, sort of recognize that surveys are not really great instruments to tell you why. Um, someone answers something the way that they do or what their thought process is or really what their full experience is um, and there you know there are other ways um, that anthropologists use really frequently that can get at those those pieces um, that sometimes are really important to answer the questions that that we want to answer in in healthcare. so you know interviewing people or just being there and observing what happens um, in a space um, is sometimes really important. It is more time consuming than a survey, but I think, you know, if the survey isn't going to answer the question that you want to answer, then it's time wasted. Um, so that that's my, I, so I don't think surveys are useless. I do think they, they have a use, but I think it's important. They're not the answer for everything. Sure, sure. They certainly seem to be overused. I mean, maybe not just in healthcare and, you know, I get them all the time from other industries as well. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to click through and, and not answer as, I guess, as truthful, truthfully as maybe you would if you were having an interview and a conversation with somebody. 
So I guess in any so one measure one measure of whether a survey is what you need. So if you keep doing survey and you're trying to improve some some outcome, patient satisfaction, let's say, um, and you can't seem to move that metric towards sort of your goal, and you you ask you've asked the same survey or you've tried different questions on a survey, but you can't seem to identify why is patient satisfaction at this level and not where we want it to be, then you know that you need something else. You know that you need to ask deeper questions, spend more time with patients, um, get at the, you know, get that answer to the why. And like Mariela said, that's a survey doesn't give you that answer usually. Sure. Mary Alice, in, in working with, with medical students and, and with residents, I, you know, we talk about, you know, the different cultures among different types of providers. And in, in your experience, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a surgeon. Jake is an internal medicine physician. And is it is it the personalities that are driven towards certain specialties or is it the specialty that that turns that person into a, a certain personality does that make does that make sense because you know you have you got your neurosurgeons and you know i'm not even going to go there and then you have your <laughs> orthopedic surgeons and you have your you know your plastic surgeons and general surgeons and internists it, it's just really fascinating how of course there's there's always exceptions but it does seem like certain personalities are, are are driven toward different specialties. Yeah, you cannot take the same personality of a pediatrician and a neurosurgeon and swap them, I wouldn't think. Yeah, I mean, well, so I will I will say I think um, we I, I think we talked about this in the last the last podcast. I think yeah. we have to be careful, right, about putting people in those boxes because sometimes we see what yeah. we're looking for, right? Um, and good. so I think if you have an idea of who what a neurosurgeon is, you may be more likely to identify those traits in the neurosurgeons that are standing in front of you when maybe that's not all they are, right? Maybe there's other things going on with that person. So I think that's important to to think about. But I think you're question about um, is it people like people's personalities who get drawn you know certain personalities get drawn to um, certain um, professions or is it the training within the profession that changes people I, I mean I think it's maybe some of both and maybe none of it um, I, I'm, I, and I think that's, that would be an interesting question to really explore a lot further. Um, I think my experience working with um, in graduate medical education is that it, there's certainly there's an enculturation process, right, where there are certain expectations about how you should behave, what you should value, how you should dress, right? Um, how you should interact with and communicate with other people on your team. And so I certainly think that training, you get those things trained into you, right? And I mean, I think as as beginning anthropologists, I think one of the things that we learn about culture is that it's learned. It's not something that's innate. And so I certainly think there's some of that um, going on in the process. The other thing I would just say really quickly about that is that one of the things that we've been working on um, a lot recently here is really thinking about how do we create um, 
educational institutions and spaces that are more inclusive. Because I think instead of maybe, instead of thinking about that certain personalities are drawn to particular professions, maybe it's that a lot of people are excluded um, because of the way that we've set up the system and they, mm-hmm. they just can't fit within that system. And if we were able to create educational systems that were more inclusive, then maybe we would see, maybe those patterns would really change a lot in terms of um, the stereotypes or the kind of ways that we perceive different professions. I think that's good. And I could actually see HF and as being a pediatrician or even an internist. You're that good. You could be an internist. Wow. <laughs> you know, what, so, we, we had all these. Anyway, go, go ahead, uh, Dr. Martinez. I, I, I'll save these no, comments. No, for your, your, your question made me think of sort of another sort of area that we see anthropologists in recent in the last 20 years playing a role in, and that's interprofessional education. Um and one thing I try to make my medical students aware is that not only their patients have culture, but they have culture. And they're going through the process of enculturation into medical education. Like Mary Alice said, what's expected of them? And as part of one culture, we often have stereotypes about others. And what I saw within the health professions is, and we try to work in breaking down is the, and I think it's important that we do this early is break down the stereotypes about our other professions that we interact with to foster better interprofessional teamwork. So there's been this movement in the last 20 or years, years or so to improve quality uh, of patient care and outcomes through interprofessional teamwork and education. And so that's another area where I see anthropologists playing a role because we are not within any of those health uh, professional cultures, but we can also train in intercultural communication. And so we can sort of help people speak across the table. And uh, one of the things we did at Florida International University was design an interprofessional workshop where we had seven different health disciplines. And we tried to get them at the right moment to basically, uh, and break the ice. Our first thing was break the ice and just understand. So, hey, you student in PT. Um, so why did you go into PT? Why PT? And and, and why nutrition? And why nursing? Um, and what students found is that they had more in common than they had difference in terms of what drew them to uh, their different um, d- degree in the chosen field. And so that's another area that I think we need to think about in the role of anthropology is how do we help bridge the communication between cultures, between professional cultures. Wow, the very best comment. I I think I'm going to have you back on the podcast, Dr. Martinez, just for that one comment alone. I think that's so important because as a patient travels through this very complex, open socio-technical system that we happen to call healthcare, they don't really care about the different disciplines. They don't care about the different departments. Mm-hmm. But how well all of those different disciplines and areas um, communicate and and share with each other has an impact on how that patient's experiences. And so that that last comment, uh, Dr. Martinez, was really really good. And if if I was allowed, I would 
take us another hour on this podcast, but unfortunately, I'm going to I'm going to have to land the plane right now. But I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Martinez and Dr. Scott. Thank you all so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, every time I interact uh, uh, with you, I, I tend to walk away um, thinking more about the world that I'm living in. So just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to thank both of you, Dr. Martinez and Dr. Scott. Thank you so much for your time and the great work that you're doing. You're so appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. And thank you all very much. Thank you. I enjoyed meeting you.